This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The, the title of the lecture, lecture is Activity and Purpose in Nature, Aristotle's Four Causes and the Possibility of Science. One of the most common stories told about modern science is that it rejects, and indeed was born from a rejection of, the Aristotelian theory of nature, and especially of two of its four causes, formal and final. It is true, as a matter of history, that many early modern scientists criticized some things they associated with Aristotle. But as a matter of philosophy, there just are not, in the early modern scientists, arguments against Aristotle's understanding of causality. Instead, what one finds is confusion. My aim in this lecture is to offer an unconfused presentation of what Aristotle meant by the four causes, to make clear that not only has modern science not abandoned them, but that we could not even imagine any, any genuinely scientific practice or progress which had. Aristotle was a scientist. He was a pioneering naturalist and author of many scientific works. He wrote treatises on meteorology, astronomy, and physical elements, and at least 15 works on general and special topics in biology, including aging, breathing, sleeping, dreaming, memory, sensation, parts of animals, generation of animals, and more. More often discussed, however, is Aristotle's treatise on the science of nature in general, which we call the physics. Aristotle's Greek term, physis, means nature, or the world available to the senses. And to avoid confusion with modern specialized physics, classical Aristotelian physics is sometimes just called natural philosophy, or philosophy of nature. When we want to study a part of nature, a kind of creature or habitat, a kind of creaturely function like sensing or dreaming or breathing, we define it in a particular way and study its principles. But when nature is studied as a whole, and we seek to understand the principles underlying all of the natural or physical world, we are engaged in physics in the classical sense. Aristotle didn't invent inquiry into the principles of nature, and long before him, those seeking to identify the common characteristics shared by the diverse parts of the natural world focused on one in particular, its propensity to change. Natural things move. They rearrange themselves into new configurations. They grow and they decay. They change size and shape and location. Even the most permanent and unchanging things in the natural world, astronomical bodies, for instance, change their location. They spin and move relative to other bodies. And as we now know, although Aristotle did not, at one point long ago, they came into being. At some time, they will pass out of being, and in between, they undergo dramatically dynamic activity. So if we seek the general principles of nature, we need to grasp the general principles of this undeniable fact of nature, namely its propensity to change. But change is really elusive, a peculiar thing to contemplate. As a matter of experience, we can take it so much for granted that we are surprised to notice what interesting intellectual problems it raises. 
Is change so fundamental that we should assume that the most basic element of the natural world is itself a dynamic changing thing? That in part seems to be behind Thales' hypothesis that all is water, and Heraclitus' insistence that all is fire. Even so, change implies such odd puzzles about continuity of motion, about how being can emerge from non-being, that some Greek thinkers, finding these problems so difficult, argued that change was impossible. Thus, Parmenides argued that all is one eternal permanent being, and Zeno's famous paradoxes are all designed to show that even thinking about change leads to contradictions or absurdities. While we observe change all the time with our bodily senses, it is so difficult to make intelligible to our minds that even mathematics finds it difficult. In a way, certain mathematical problems of change were not really solved until the 17th century with the invention of calculus. And even then, the solution to the problem of change rests on positing something else very strange, the infinitesimal, an infinitely small but non-zero quantity such that an infinite amount of infinitesimals doesn't add up to something infinite. That's really weird. Plato's solution to the problem of change was more moderate than those who denied its existence, but he still held that things that change are somehow not genuinely real. The physical world is the world of coming to be and passing away, not of simply being. As such, it is only a shadow of some higher reality. Things that change are but shadowy participations of separate non-physical realities, forms which are permanent, eternal, and unchanging. What makes change so hard to understand? While the existence of change is obvious to our senses, the idea of change is confusing to our intellect. Our mind wants to grasp things in some definite way. Its concepts are abstract and timeless. But things that change are particular individual things, and the very fact of their changing means that they do not stay fixed to be conceived under a stable, unchanging concept. As Plato put it, something that is changing is between being and not being. It is almost something and not yet that something. When something is coming to be in some way, it is harder to conceive of than just when it is in that way. Indeed, to conceive of a thing is to conceive of it as being in some way, but insofar as it just is in some way, then it is not coming to be, nor is it ceasing to be, and so it is not changing. Aristotle's approach to physics then is to uncover and clarify what concepts we need to make sense of change. Let us reflect on a simple case. A grape ripening on the vine comes to be sweet. Let us begin to analyze this by noticing that before the change we have a grape that is not sweet, and after the change we have a grape that is sweet. We can think of the change as producing a new thing, a sweet grape, where there was no sweet grape before, but we can also think of it as some new characterization of something else that remains. A grape, which is there at the beginning, but did not have the character of sweetness, comes to take on the character of sweetness. In other words, we have something that undergoes a change, in this case the grape, and some respect in which it changes from being not sweet to being sweet. From examples like this, Aristotle generalizes and says that conceptualizing change always involves three intelligible aspects a subject which undergoes and underlies change, a privation, the lack of some character in the subject at the beginning of the change, 
and a form, the character that the subject takes on in the change. This then is Aristotle's general analysis of change. And note that as an account of the elements involved in conceiving of change, Aristotle's account thus far is not a theory that could be falsified by some new empirical discovery. It is a description of the conceptual framework that must be in place for us to make sense of any empirical observation of change. Empirical observation is always in some way observation of change, and if we are able to conceive of change, it is because we can conceive of some subject which comes to have some form where there was previously a lack or privation of that form. Aristotle has drawn on empirical observation to develop this account, but as a theory, it is not a falsifiable hypothesis about one or another particular physical phenomenon. It is a generalized philosophical account of the very possibility of conceiving physical change and its empirical observation. Now more needs to be said here about form. The word form, in Greek, morphe, literally means shape. It is easy to make the conceptual distinction between, say, a chunk of bronze or clay and the particular shape or form in which it is configured. It is also easy to conceive of a change, like a bust being carved out of stone, as a new shape being communicated to some underlying material. Aristotle invites us to stretch the term form so that we can apply it to any determinations or characterizations, including those that are not literal geometrical shapes. The taste of sweetness as a form of or in the grape. The color yellow as a form of or in the dying leaf. The use of form, while it has its origins in the technical terminology of Aristotle's philosophy, is really not so peculiar in English. Through education, we form our intellects. A discipline of prayer can be part of spiritual formation. Even the word transformation is just a fancy word for change. The subject of a change, which at one point has a privation, that is, lacks the form, and then comes to have the form, can be called the matter. Indeed, the notion of matter includes both the notion of subject and privation, Matter is a subject conceived of insofar as it does not include some form. Like the term form, the term matter, in Greek, hule, has humble beginnings. Literally, it means the stuff or raw material. It would have described the pile of bricks and lumber at a job site. But Aristotle stretches this word too, so that anything that undergoes a change and that is conceived of as receiving a form in the process of that change is a kind of matter, stuff. The grape is the matter which receives the form of sweetness. The leaf is the matter which receives the form of yellow. Matter and form, then, are relative terms. They are understood only in relation to each other. What something is, is subject to different levels of analysis, and depending on the level of analysis, the relevant matter will always be relative to what is conceived of as form. Let's take an easy example, ice. Ice can be understood as resulting from a form, the frozen solid phase state, inhering in a kind of matter, water. But what if we have an ice sculpture, say of a swan? Then the ice, which we have just analyzed in terms of both form, freezing solid, and matter, water, is itself the matter of the sculpture, the subject of the swan shape carved into it. Even further, if the lights are on and the sculpture is illuminated, 
the swan sculpture itself can be considered as the matter, and the illumination can be considered as the form of which the sculpture is the subject. This is why I say matter and form are relative. What is considered as matter and form is dependent on what one is conceiving of. Things get even more interesting if we analyze the ice further into its more basic physical constituents. Ice, we said, arises from water, the matter, having a certain form, the solid phase state. But water, after all, arises from some form, molecular bonds of a specific type, taking place in a kind of matter, actually two kinds of matter, hydrogen and oxygen atoms. And on another level of analysis, the hydrogen and oxygen atoms themselves can be thought of in terms of forms or atomic structures, giving a specific mode of being to the raw materials of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And modern subatomic physicists can go even farther explaining that protons, neutrons, and electrons are themselves formal states or configurations or behaviors of some underlying material, quarks, or bosons, or superstrings, or whatever. We can understand the project of modern physics less as an attempt to understand the principles of nature in general than as an attempt to find the most basic building blocks or the smallest and most primal material stuff that underlies the things in nature. In this sense, it might be consciously attending to material causes, but to do so, it must be seeking to strip away from matter the forms inhering in them, sometimes stripping away only conceptually, but sometimes in actual fact by considerable controlled violence, like in the Large Hadron Collider. That literally takes tiny particles and smashes them together to try to get them not to have the form or structure that they have and see what's left over after we do that. What will physicists arrive at eventually? Aristotle, without having to engage in sophisticated empirical research for this primal stuff, had a name for what must ultimately underlie all physical things. He called it prime matter, something that lacks all form but is capable of receiving form so it is what underlies any and all change. Of course, if we describe it as such, we must admit that we could never detect it as such. That is, whatever we detect, we would detect as having some quality or property, which would be due to a form, not to prime matter underlying it. In other words, prime matter as such is logically necessary. We know it must exist, even though in principle, it cannot be empirically detected as such. That is, it cannot be observed existing on its own without any form. For to detect something empirically is to grasp it as being in some way. And if it is in some way, that is because it is characterized or determined by some form to be in that way. Another way to get at the Aristotelian notion of prime matter is to recall that the analysis of change in terms of form and matter is meant to apply not only to what Aristotle calls accidental change, but to what he calls substantial change. In accidental change, something remains essentially what it is, but takes on a new characteristic or feature. In substantial change, the change cannot be described simply as a thing realizing a new feature, but as a new thing itself coming to be or ceasing to exist. In other words, in accidental change, the matter is a substance, which takes on a new accidental form, like water becoming frozen or the frozen water being carved into a shape. But in substantial change, some underlying matter takes on a substantial form, 
like hydrogen and oxygen being joined into water molecules so that what is not water is transformed into water. Since the substantial form is what makes that underlying matter to be a substance, then when we conceive of that underlying matter without the substantial form, that is when we conceive of it as the matter of the change, what is it? It isn't a substance, since that would imply that what persists from the beginning to the end of a process of generation of a substance is another substance. Indeed, it would imply that any given generated substance is really at least two substances, the substance that came into being and the substance that is the subject of that change. Technically, water is not a mixture of hydrogen and oxygen, which are gases. It's not a mixture, right? It's a new compound in which what were atoms of hydrogen and oxygen are in fact now not hydrogen and oxygen anymore, but are parts of a new kind of molecule, water. So what underlies a substantial change is not a substance, but there must be something that underlies the change if we are to conceive of it as a change at all. But obviously we can and do conceive of a substance coming into existence, we call that generation, or passing out of existence, we call that corruption. In the case of living things, death. And we are aware of these as kinds of change. Since every change must involve a subject taking on some form that it previously lacked, there must be a subject of substantial change. This subject is prime matter, not existing on its own, but originally under one substantial form, say as an acorn, and then subsequently under another substantial form, an oak tree. Notice, we don't think that an oak tree is a kind of acorn. It comes from the acorn. But then the acorn is not the subject of the change. The subject of the change is the matter that was the matter of an acorn and has become the matter of an oak. I have emphasized following Aristotle that form and matter are initially introduced to explain change. But as is becoming clear, we see them as principles of change. As we see them as principles of change, we can use them even in our analysis of what is not presently undergoing change. For if every physical thing came to be and can pass away, if everything in nature is subject to change, then every physical thing, while it exists, can be conceived of as being composed of form and matter. This is the Aristotelian doctrine of hylomorphism from Houlet and Morphe, the Greek terms for matter and form. Given that everything in nature is the result of some change, every natural thing is a composite of a formal and material principle. For shorthand, Aristotle will even refer to physical things as composites, that is, things that must be understood in terms of components. But matter and form are components in a very special sense. They are not like bricks or wood and plaster that are the components of a house. Those are all material components of a thing. If we conceive of form as one of the components, we cannot conceive of it as some physical object that is stuck to or stacked together with other physical objects. Rather, the form is the organizing principle, the unifying order that makes a substance to be more than just the sum of its parts. In the case of a house, the form is the design, the architectural order that unifies the bricks and stone and makes them constitute a house. We don't in English normally say a house is composed of bricks and a design, right? But that's what Aristotle means by saying material things are composed of matter and form. The form then is the principle of intelligibility 
communicating that rational order that can be abstracted and understood. The matter as such is not yet determinate or defined, and so, in a sense, as matter, is not fully intelligible or understood, like a jumble of bricks and wood that hasn't yet been built into something coherent. Matter is what receives and individuates the coherent form, but isn't coherent in itself. Form and matter are components of a composite substance then, but in this very special sense. The form is the principle of intelligibility, making something to have the specific nature that it does. And matter is the principle of individuation, making something to be a concrete particular distinct from other particulars of the same species. At this point, it is worth noting how Aristotle's hylomorphism differs from a platonic analysis of reality. Plato's theory of forms, at least the basic theory that most people know from the Phaedo and the Republic, which Plato seems to have revised and developed in some of his later works, implied a strict distinction between levels of reality. Individual physical things in the realm of change are, in a sense, for Plato, less real. What is graspable by intellect is more stable, transcends the realm of physical change, and so they are more real. It is as if Plato would draw a picture of reality with the top half being the realm of the most real, the forms themselves considered apart from matter, and the bottom would be the least real, not forms themselves, but matter as it participates in or shares in forms. It is often alleged that Aristotle reversed this priority, for he seems to think that the particular individuals are the primary substances, the real things, and the forms themselves don't exist as such apart from matter, but are only available to our minds as logical categories or conceptual classifications we make when we analyze those primary substances. Certainly one of the advantages of Aristotle's analysis over Plato's is that Aristotle seems to better distinguish the conceptual order from the real order. Our concepts may divide the world one way, but the reality that our concepts describe may exist in itself in quite another way. And one easy criticism of Plato's basic theory of the forms, a criticism that Plato himself anticipated and addressed, is that it makes a separate reality, a form, for each of our concepts and a higher or more basic form for our most general or universal concepts. So sometimes it is said that Aristotelian forms are an improvement on Platonic forms because instead of being in some alternative dimension that transcends the physical world, they are present in the individual things. Plato had material things participating in forms, a vague relationship never really expanded upon, while Aristotle has material things constituted by forms together with matter. But if Aristotle's position seems to avoid some of the difficulties of Platonic dualism, it raises some further questions, many of which Aristotle will take up in his book after the physics, that is, the metaphysics. In what sense are the forms themselves real? If intelligibility implies universality, then is what's really real ultimately intelligible? If form is introduced as something that always informs matter, is it even possible to have form existing apart from matter? I will return to some of these questions, which arise for Aristotle as he reflects on the implications of physics, at the end of this lecture. First, however, we have to attend to the other half of Aristotle's four principles in physics. Aristotle is famous for his doctrine of four causes. So far, we have introduced two, 
the formal cause and the material cause. In what sense are these causes? Aristotle's word for cause, aitia in Greek, had an everyday sense of something responsible or blameworthy. A cause is what can be held accountable for something. A cause explains something. It provides an answer to the question, why? In what sense is the form of something a cause? In the sense that the form of something is responsible in some way for why the thing is what it is. In what sense is the matter of something a cause? In the sense that the matter of something is also responsible in a different way for why the thing is what it is. What makes that, if I could gesture to it, a bust of Lincoln? It's shape, a formal cause. What makes the bronze bust of Lincoln different from the marble bust of Lincoln? Not the form, they have the same identical shape. Indeed, the bronze bust may have been cast from the marble one. What makes them different is the stuff it's made of, the material cause. Even before reading Aristotle, we look for explanations or accounts of things in terms of either formal cause or material cause or both. Why is that rope so strong? Because it's a, made of a new kind of fiber, we might say, giving a material cause. Why didn't the knot in the rope hold? Because it was a slip knot, we might say, describing a formal cause. Sometimes we look for both explanations at once. Why did that structure burn? Because it was made of flammable components, material cause, and got too hot, formal cause. Why is that bridge able to be so long without collapsing? Because it is a suspension bridge, formal cause, describing its design, with very high tensile steel cables, material cause. As we have seen, formal and material causes can be thought of as constituting or composing a thing. We may call them intrinsic principles or causes. Aristotle's other two causes are extrinsic principles or causes. They do not constitute what they cause, though they are still responsible for it. Sometimes when we ask the why of something, we are seeking a factor which produced the effect. Why did it get too hot? Because it was exposed to fire. Why are the cookies gone? Because I ate them. We call this the agent, from Latin meaning the acting thing. Aristotle most often called it that from which, or the origin of motion. Most commonly today, Aristotelians call it the efficient cause, where efficient doesn't mean low cost or economical, it means effective, it means the making cause. The efficient cause is that which acts on something to produce an effect. The fourth cause answers the question of why in the sense of for what purpose or with what intention. Aristotle called it the that for the sake of which. This too is extrinsic in the sense that we don't think of a goal or purpose as a component of something. Indeed, the purpose or goal of a thing is often first understood as the purpose or goal of the agent which produced that thing. But if a builder makes a house for the purpose of shelter, we can say that it is the purpose of the house and not just the purpose of the builder that it serve as a shelter. The house itself has a purpose or goal and with a well-made thing, one can discern its purpose from its very design, even without having to ask the person who made it. The Greek word for goal or purpose is telos. The Aristotelian tradition typically translates this as end, not in the sense of the terminating point, but in the sense of that towards which something is oriented, or that for the sake of which something is done. 
It is the sense of end that complements the notion of means. A means to an end is a way of achieving a purpose. So this fourth cause can be called the end of something. And in the same spirit, it is also called the final cause, again, where final doesn't mean last in a series, but that towards which something is directed. Notice that it does not make much sense to think, notice that it does make sense to think of each of these as causes. Why is there a house on that spot? Because someone built it there, efficient cause. Because the raw material is arranged into a solid house-shaped structure, material and formal cause. Because someone wanted to live there, final cause. Indeed, a complete explanation of something would include reference to all four causes. But sometimes we are only asking for one. And sometimes we conflate causes, confusing a question about one kind of cause with a question about another kind of cause. We can do this by mistake. Why is your drawing red? Because I used red ink, answering in terms of material cause. No, I mean, why did you want it to be red? Clarifying that the question seeks a final cause. Sometimes we can also conflate the causes intentionally. We might do this to make a joke. You know when geese fly in a V, how one of the legs of the V is longer than the other? Do you know why one is longer than the other? It's because there's more geese in it. Right? The joke works because I, you were expecting a final cause and you were trying to think of a final cause, but I gave a material cause. Why are you wearing a blue sweater? Because I put, put my blue sweater on, right? That, that way a child might annoy their parent or a parent might annoy their child by pretending not to under, understand what the, what the question is about. The sweater question implicitly expected a final cause but received a trivial efficient cause instead. It is easy to see how final and efficient causes are parts of the explanation of man-made things. A human being with a conscious intention sculpts the sculpture, builds the building, knits the sweater. In other words, it is easy to see how an artificial thing is produced when an efficient cause communicates a formal cause to some material cause for the sake of some final cause. But what about natural things and natural processes? Surely they need efficient causes too. The tree cracked because it was struck by lightning. The flower bloomed because it was nourished by sun and water. These are clearly efficient causes. But does an efficient cause, an, ag an, an agent in nature, act for a purpose? Are there final causes in nature? There are to the extent that we treat things as having natures that incline them to uh, tend towards certain kinds of behavior. Obviously, the end or purpose is not something conscious, but we find that we make sense of the activity of natural agents by describing the object of their actions. You have all heard that modern science has supposedly put final causes aside and rejected the notion that natural things are teleological. But what could that mean? In fact, psychologically, it's very hard to avoid final causality even in the most materialistic and mechanistic scientific explanations of things. Animals want food. Gases tend to fill their containing space. Genes seek to replicate themselves. This intending or inclining is not deliberate seeking of a conscious purpose, gases and genes don't think, but it is still an orientation toward something, the toward which something is oriented, what it by nature is inclined to do, can be thought of as its purpose or end, explaining why the thing behaves as it does. 
To say that it is in the nature of table salt to dissolve in water is to say something about how table salt is naturally inclined to behave in certain circumstances. It is to describe table salt teleologically. Indeed, it is often the tendencies of things, the propensity to act in a certain way, that gives us a clue to their nature or what they are. And even if we come to understand the behavior of table salt in greater detail, say by attending to its material elements and formal structure to better understand why it is oriented that way, in this case, why the molecular bonds of NaCl react in a certain way when suspended in H2O, if we do that, we have not replaced a teleological account, we have only augmented it with a more detailed account of the relevant material and efficient causes based on what are known of their tendencies and purposes, that is, the particular teleological orientation of sodium and chloride, of electrons and protons, etc. A related important pair of concepts that plays a role in Aristotle's philosophy of nature is act, or actuality, and potency, or potentiality. We have already been talking about these notions implicitly. Aristotle introduces them in the context of defining motion or change. And in the terms we've used already, change is form coming to a subject which previously had a privation of that form. But now we may describe change or motion like this. It is the actualization of a potency. Something has a potency when it could be something but isn't. Something has an actuality when it really is something already. So for instance, before the grape is ripened, it does not have the actuality of ripeness, but it has a potentiality for ripeness. Indeed, to say that it has a potentiality for ripeness is just to say that it is not actually ripe, but could become ripe. Motion in the broadest sense, not just change in location, but any physical change that a thing may undergo, implies that there are potencies in some or other matter that come to be actualized by some or other form. That which does the actualizing, the agent or efficient cause, must have in some way in itself the relevant actuality so that it can communicate that actuality to the subject. The subject, insofar as it lacks that actuality, is in potency to the actuality. That is to say, it is the material cause which will underlie and receive the actuality communicated by something else, the agent. The Greek word for potency is dunamis. From it, we get our word dynamic, and it can also be translated as ability or capacity or power. The Greek word for actuality is energeia. Aristotle introduces another term, entelechia, in the metaphysics. But from energeia, we get our word energy. It is interesting that both dunamis and energeia could loosely be translated in English as power, but there are two kinds of power. Active power, which is the power to make something happen, the power to change things, and passive power, which is the power or potential to undergo something, to be changed. In English, when we describe something with a lot of active power, actuality, we might say that it is very potent. On the other hand, when we describe something which has a lot of passive power, we might describe it as having a lot of potential. So while the language may seem uncommon, the very ideas are ones that modern science has not been able to escape because modern science has not been able to escape the phenomenon of change and so of potencies being actualized. Matter is the principle of potency. Form is the principle of actuality. 
Efficient causes communicate actuality to what is in potency to receive it. And final causes are the tendencies or orientations of things they are endowed with by and giving evidence of the actualities they exhibit as the kinds of things they are. I have already suggested that despite a common story that modern science has moved beyond and even emerged because it cast aside formal and final causes, that isn't quite the case. Explicitly Aristotelian language about formal and final causality may be rare among modern scientists, but the idea of organizing structure and of ordered tendencies has hardly disappeared. If anything, in various ways, science is struggling to recapture a vocabulary for what it left behind in name only, the idea that a whole can be greater than the sum of its parts and that things of different natures have different functions or purposes. This is evident most obviously in biology, where living organisms resist any reductionist analysis to mere mechanistic physics. But it is also evident in physics, where it is clear that in addition to finding the most basic elemental stuff of the universe, we need to understand the organizing forces, the principles of structure that make collections of such elemental stuff more than the sum of their parts. It is hard to imagine any branch of science whose assumptions and findings could not be translated into the language of Aristotelian causes. Still, scientists typically aren't habituated to speak in Aristotelian terms. How might more attention to the different kinds of causes and their relation be beneficial for the future of science? I will briefly suggest four ways. First, it can help advance scientific inquiry itself. By clarifying exactly what they are inquiring into, attention to the four causes can help scientists be more successful in their inquiries. The language of the four causes helps to distinguish and disambiguate the questions at stake in everyday empirical inquiry. Second, attending to Aristotle's four causes can help us understand the relation of the physical sciences to each other. By helping clarify what the specialized sciences are studying and how their subject matters relate to each other, we can better see the specialized sciences not as fragmentary and unrelated inquiries, but as parts of a larger coherent inquiry into the physical world. Third, attention to the four, causes, four modes of causality could help us understand the relation of the physical sciences to other types of inquiry. How might biology, chemistry, and physics relate to sociology or political science or ethics. Positivism aimed to unite the sciences in a reductionist way as if everything including the human sciences would be eventually translated into physics, mechanistic physics. <clears throat> Aristotelian causality helps us understand that the higher can't be reduced to the lower and that every order might have its own proper actualities and ends worthy of study. And indeed, in Aristotle, we can understand ethics as a particular part of study of human nature, namely human telos and purpose, and what accidental forms or habits will help us achieve our end. And Aquinas' Summa Theologiae can be understood as placing this kind of inquiry into the context of a whole cosmology so that human beings ordered toward their end are but a microcosm of the whole universe achieving its end. This suggests my fourth and final reason why attention to the four modes of causality in nature can be helpful today. It can point toward the necessity 
of other inquiry behind, beyond the science of nature. I mentioned earlier that characterizing natural things, which act for ends, as composites of matter and form, raises questions which natural philosophy itself cannot answer. If in nature, form always and only exists in matter, can there be such a thing as a form existing without matter? Is there any reality which is not physical reality? If form is the principle of intelligibility, but forms must inhere in matter, is there in reality always some degree of unintelligibility? If things come to be thanks to an agent, must there be a first agent that started it all? Aristotle gives an argument for an unmoved mover, a primal agent, the first cause in the physics. But what we learn about this unmoved mover is necessarily limited there. What is it like? The only honest answer is that beyond the description of it as an unmoved mover, it isn't really the business of physics to say what it's like. Physics has proven the existence of something that is presupposed by natural phenomena. But since this thing whose existence is proven is not itself a natural phenomenon, it is not subject to change. And so it cannot be investigated by physics. It is not so strange for a science to uncover something that is beyond its scope to inquire into. Someone studying the refraction of light may come to realize that light obeys certain geometric laws, but then if he inve investigates those geometric laws, he is not engaging in a study of refraction of light anymore. He's engaging in geometry. So too, physics for Aristotle leads to a place where it must acknowledge its own limits, the need for a science in some sense prior to the science of the natural world, a science that can investigate something that is beyond the capacity of physics to investigate. Even if one were inclined to criticize Aristotle's proof for the existence of a prime mover, which is still a quite viable proof despite much modern skepticism about it, even if one wanted to insist that everything that is real is material, one would have to go beyond the limits of physics as a science. For the materialist claim that there is nothing beyond the physical world is not a claim that physics itself can make. Thus, even before we see how these further questions can be answered in Aristotle's science of physical, how these further questions can be answered, Aristotle's science of physical causes raises questions about the nature of reality and calls forth another more fundamental or higher science. The four causes discovered in physics thus point towards the science, thus put the science of nature in the context of an even more general and universal human wonder about the ultimate causes of the physical world itself.